can take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 20 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 20. I want to echo the greeting, the welcome that was given to those who are guests with us this morning, and especially our college students. We're glad to see you again, to have you worshiping among us. I also wanted to encourage you to consider something that's a vital part of our church family's life, um, and that would be life groups. Many of us take a month or so in the summer and take a break, and then during this time of the year, we reconvene um, and meet together again. Uh, This is not a requirement of church membership or being part of this body. It's not a requirement in, in Scripture. But it is one of the ways that we are seeking to apply the one another commands. This is a great way. It's been an encouraging way for our church family get, to get to know one another well, to be praying for one another, to be serving one another. So perhaps you've been a member for a long time and never been a part of a life group, or perhaps you've been in a life group and haven't been able to be going lately. I'd encourage you to, again, pick that up and invest in other members in our church family. Look at verses uh, 1 through 3 in just a few moments. But have you ever seen one of those log rolling competitions? Do you know what I'm talking about? I've seen them before in a movie or maybe on a YouTube clip. And what you have is a log in the middle of some body of water and two people, two competitors on that log, and that log begins to spin. And the goal is to see who can stay on the log the longest. Not really a genius type of a competition, but surely it's challenging. There's, there's no real footing there, is there? You can imagine just how difficult that might be. That's what it seems like David and Israel are facing, as we're going to see in our text, further challenges to the king being restored to his throne in Jerusalem. We see more rebellion and more turmoil. And more hardship in chapter 20. This text will point us to the Lord by his seeming absence from the scene. I hope you will see that very clearly as we work through the text this morning. David himself, while mentioned, isn't really even the focus of this text. Chapter 20 begins and ends focused primarily on a rebel named Sheba. What is happening here? What lesson does God want to teach us through further turmoil in the lives of his people? We'll seek to answer that question as we go along. Look down in your Bibles. We'll actually jump back a few verses to chapter 19. And we'll read beginning in verse 41. And then we'll read through verse 3 of chapter 20. This is God's word to us, his people. 2 Samuel 19.41 Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? Have, Have we taken any advantage? Verse 43, and the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have ten shares in the king because we have ten tribes. And in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? 
But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer or more convincing or overwhelming than the words of the men of Israel. Now verse 1 of chapter 20. Now there happened to be a worthless man, a son of Belial, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Let's ask for God's help as we consider his word again this morning. Father, we come before you again in dependence, asking for you to open our ears, open our eyes, that we might see and know the truth of your word, that we might see more of you. Help us to be convinced that our greatest need is not to figure out how to work through the turmoil in our lives, but to grow closer to the King who will never leave us nor forsake us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our text will show us that the failures of the king and division among God's people lead to great instability and tragedy. We might say that word instability is stamped over 2 Samuel 20. Now it's important to understand at this point how the book of 2 Samuel is structured or laid out. This is really the last chapter of David's story and we're near the end of his reign. And though we have chapters 21 through 24 still to study, they function as an epilogue, some concluding events to the story. So we've come to the end of David's story in a sense. And we're supposed to see and feel the instability and disappointment that though we saw David rise to great heights, we continue to see the devastating consequences of his sin. This morning, our text reveals ongoing turmoil and instability. We'll consider our text in five movements. First, further rebellion. In verses 1 and 2, we're first introduced to this man named Sheba with a description of his character. The narrator is going out of his way to make sure we know what to think of this man. He's a worthless man. We've seen this title or this description used over and over in the books of First and Second Samuel. We're also not surprised to read that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. We've come to expect trouble from this tribe, right? There was Saul and there's Isbosheth, there's Shimei, and now there's Sheba. The narrator wants us to recognize that this is full-fledged rebellion against God's chosen king and therefore against God himself. But he also wants to see the nature of rebellion. Do you see the change? Do you see the uh, drama here? The remarkable change of mind? At the end of chapter 19, Israel's complaining, we have ten shares in the king. Why then did you despise us? But now Sheba says, we have no portion in David. And he calls Israel to leave David and essentially secede from the kingdom. Now doesn't this seem rather childish? Is this at all surprising to you that after all this time, 
after all that David has done, after all of his greatness, this is where we're ending up with this childish, silly dispute. We didn't get to honor the king and receive the honors that we wanted. We're going to take our ball and go home. What seems to be at least part of the root of this rebellion and division is that one group is simply not getting their way. Therefore, their conclusion is, let's just leave. Let's break away from the whole. Doesn't the context of this turmoil between these tribes simply reveal underlying pride? Now, when you read this passage, don't you kind of feel like, here we go again. These Israelites just can't seem to get along for very, very long, can they? They're always fighting over something pretty stupid, it seems. They're always being tripped up by something that seems rather obvious to us. But isn't it true that all of God's people act like this from time to time? Isn't it true that we know of churches, we've been in churches, that are described by fighting and bickering and disunity like this? Isn't God's Spirit just pointing out again our own sinful natures? This is the same root of contention for us. Proverbs 13.10 tells us, where there is strife, where there is contention, there is pride. The men from the tribes of Israel want the preeminence. They want recognition. They want to have a say. They think their ideas should be given more weight by the leadership than it's being given. And if they don't get their way, we're gone. We're pulling out. Have you ever found yourself thinking and acting that way? Shutting down a conversation or a conflict or running away because it's not going the way you want. Have you ever felt and acted this way toward others, even among your church family? We all find ourselves guilty of giving in to the pride in our hearts at some point in our lives. The point here is that this is common. This is common among us. We all tend to demand our own way in our homes and in our relationships and even in our churches. The way forward, though, is to begin by considering how God views this. Proverbs 6, 16 and following lists several things that are especially offensive to God. We read, these are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. And the last two listed then in verse 19 are a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. God's paying attention and he hates it. Earlier in the week, I I thought I would label this sermon as the God who hates disunity. In a sense, I still think that's fitting. Listen again to what God commands his people through what we just read from the pen of Paul. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This isn't your idea. I've brought you in. So walk worthy. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, listen carefully to this phrase, eager to maintain or to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This isn't unity that you're to procure or secure or to bring to this body. It's been given to you by Christ. 
So your job is to maintain it. And he takes that seriously. He says in another letter, Colossians 3.14, above all these virtues, above all these things that he's talking about in chapter 3, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We're in disunity when we're loving ourselves rather than our Christ and one another. We read over and over in God's word, he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as we see Israel's disunity and sin and pride, we're to apply this to ourselves. What do you stand to gain? What do you gain if you would humble yourself and work to maintain or keep the unity that God has already provided in Christ? And what do you stand to lose if you stubbornly cling to your way and insist on pursuing division? Proverbs 6, 12 through 15 warns us about acting like Sheba. It says a worthless person, interesting that it uses that same word. A wicked man goes about with crooked speech. He says things that he shouldn't. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with a perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. And notice the end. But they will be destroyed suddenly, broken in an instant beyond all hope of healing. So before even finishing the chapter, I think you can see where this is going to end up for Sheba. What we find here at the end of David's reign here in chapter 20 is turmoil and instability. This further rebellion simply reminds us of Israel's past rebellion. We're right back to where we started at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Do you remember? David's been anointed king. Saul has died. He should take the throne But for years, he only reigns over Judah because there's a rebellion under Ishbosheth. Second, we see further consequences in verse 3. It's instructive for us in verse 3 that the very first thing David does when he returns to Jerusalem and to his home is to provide for and address this issue with the ten concubines. Remember, they're the ones that Solomon had taken to the roof of the palace and established that he was the king by taking David's harem. This is a poignant moment in the text. There's loss and tragedy in these sentences because these women's lives are being affected so drastically by the sins of others. This teaches us that sin always, always has far-reaching consequences that we very rarely can see. Sin always runs downstream and affects those that we had no intention of hurting. David's sinful decisions, first in multiplying wives and then in committing adultery with Bathsheba, continues to cascade down like an avalanche, as God had said it would. We're to take note and receive the warning this verse provides. Avoid sin in your life. Don't play with it. If something just popped into your mind, you run from that sin. You run to Christ. You ask for help. Notice how sinful choices does such harm. Even as David is seeking to deal with it rightly now. Though these women are no longer included in the royal harem, David does provide for them to the best of his ability. He will not let them be used again as Absalom had. 
And the fact that the narrator records this as the first thing that David does demonstrates he's trying his best to repair a terrible error and cauterize the wound that his sin has caused. But notice, David's not truly able to repair the damages of his sin or to wipe away the tears of those hurt by sin. Now, after the narrator has gone out of his way to demonstrate the continued consequences of sin, he returns in verse 4 and following to the story of Sheba. And guess who's about to reappear, reappear onto the stage as trouble's brewing in the kingdom? Joab is going to take center stage next and demonstrate further treachery. Let's continue our reading in verses 4 down through 14. Verse 4 says, Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together with, to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his side. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? Remember, Amasa was his cousin. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him as was custom. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a blow and he died. Then Joab and Abishai his brother pursued Sheba the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah, And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. David calls now for Amasa, the general of Absalom's army, again another one of David's nephews, to assemble the troops of Judah and return to Jerusalem in three days, ready to pursue this rebel. We're told that while he left to summon the men of Judah, Amasa delayed beyond the set time. We're not told what caused this delay and the reasons for it are really beside the point. They caused David to take another action. He seeks another alternative for establishing a unified peace. He turns to his second in command, Abishai. And it's clear that David has now intentionally sidelined Joab. Most likely, it's because he had disobeyed his order not to touch his son Absalom. He's intending to move forward without Joab's leadership. He has every right to do this. He is the king. Now, the pursuit of Sheba is important, as David says. This growing rebellion cannot gather further steam. So Abishai is to act quickly. He's to take the best of David's troops. And then the surprise hits us in verse 7. Where we read that he takes Joab's men. Well that wasn't part of the command was it? 
from verse 7, you begin to suspect where this might be headed. In verses 8 through 13, Joab drives the action. We have seen him time and time again. He's not a man who sits on his hands. No matter what his king has said or intends, he has no intention of being sidelined. He's a man of pragmatic action. If he gets the job done, what can David say? He's a capable leader, and he'll do what he does best. Remove all the obstacles out of his way to his own success. He has his own way of securing David's kingdom. They have the same goal, so who cares how he accomplishes that goal? Joab as a character is fascinating, isn't he? He's complex. He's not all bad, and he's not all good. On the one hand, he's zealous to see Israel stay together. He's zealous for Israel to follow after David. He's bold and courageous. At one point in chapter 10, maybe the highest moment for him, with great faith, he defeats a superior foe with his brother Abishai. The bottom line about about Joab is that he gets things done. And for us, that can be kind of an appealing trait, right? But is that what is most important to the Lord? We should be very careful and measured in how we view this character. He gets things done in a self-serving, unsubmissive way. When David is seeking peace in the nation through an alliance with Abner, Saul's general, Joab kills him in hot-blooded vengeance. When David commanded for him to arrange for Uriah to be killed, losing many other soldiers in the process, Joab doesn't hesitate. He doesn't question his king then. When David commanded that Absalom be spared, Joab acted against his king's command and did what was expedient in his own mind. We read in verse 8 that Job is clearly armed and in some clever ploy with his sword and a kiss, he deceives his own cousin. Don't let that relationship note slip your mind. That makes this all the worse, doesn't it? His own family member. He deceives him into a false sense of ease just before he rams his blade into his stomach, cutting open his bowels. One author states the ruthlessness of Joab's murder of Amasa is chilling. For him, it's just business as usual. No need to cry over spilled blood. It's merely a clinical matter for Joab. An obstacle is removed and he proceeds to the next item on the agenda. Swiftly, silently, and mercilessly, Joab has eliminated his rival. Matthew Henry aptly describes the wickedness of this act. First, he acted as a friend toward his own cousin. And in deceit, without warning, he kills a man who'd committed no crime other than being given the position that Joab coveted and had lost for insubordination. The king had determined this man should be the general. Joab said, I don't think so. He also committed this murder out in the open in front of the rest of the army. He's neither ashamed nor afraid to act in his own self-interest just because there may be some indication that Amasa fails to act in appropriate haste doesn't mean that Joab is justified in taking this man's life. Don't let yourself go down that road of the end justifies the means. 
This act could have been even more disastrous for David, Joab, and Israel. Think of the tension within these nations. Some of these men had just been fighting against their brothers as some were on Absalom's side and some were on David's just a few weeks ago. Think of what Joab is risking. This could have split the army right here on the spot. It could have made them an easier target for Sheba. It could have started a new civil war. Joab doesn't care. He wanted to be the leader. No one will stand in his way. As the scene plays out, the brutal killing of this general causes quite an issue. It hinders the mission. But Job's prepared for this as well. One of his men stand by the slain body and declares, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Think about what this proclamation is saying. It makes it seem like what Joab had done was in the service of the king, was approved by the king, was okay. The king had merely put his confidence in the wrong man and Joab would rectify the situation. Amasa couldn't get the job done like Joab could. So again, the end justifies the means, doesn't it? Joab's the better leader, an excellent soldier. How he got the job done didn't matter nearly as much as the fact that it got done. We read that Amasa's body is finally moved out of sight and the pursuit is now able to continue unimpeded. Joab provides for us some lessons, several important applications. First among them is that godly character is far more important than the ability to get things done. Do you see that? A man with no ability to control his own sinful passions cannot be a leader among God's people. There will be devastating consequences. Here's a man that is gifted as a leader, but he has no self-control. No submission to God's king. No godly character. You see, godly leaders first demonstrate humility in their willingness to follow. If a man cannot follow, he should not lead. Joab has become as much, if not a greater problem for the king than Sheba. This chapter is really about two rebels. One who is demonstrative and open about his rebellion and another who is passive in his rebellion. Joab seems to be all for the king. If you have a conversation with him, he's a nationalist. He's all for Israel. But he's really only interested in seeing his own will accomplished. Verses 15 through 22, we next see further division. Look down again at our text Verse 15 says, And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him, and that is uh, Sheba, in Abel of Bethmaacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her. And the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel at this city. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. 
You seek to destroy a city that is a mother or significant in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Do you see the irony? He just slayed the general of the army. He he continues, that is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone and I will draw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Sheba's fled far north, over a hundred miles or so from Jerusalem. He's gone as far and as fast as he could from David and his pursuing troops. But he's not beyond the reach of a determined Joab. Joab's not about to lose his man no matter what it took to catch him. Think of what he's risked and is on the line. If Joab comes back empty-handed, what will David say then? Now, Sheba does not seem to have gathered much of a following as we're told only his own tribe joined him. It seems as though this man's rebellion is quickly losing steam and didn't really continue to pose that much of a threat. Yet Joab, always intent on the wind, no matter how costly, sets up for siege warfare and begins to attack one of the cities of Israel. Have you ever heard the saying, If the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to see every problem as a nail. Doesn't that describe Joab? He only has one tool in the toolbox. Now the narrative slows as the camera zooms in to this conversation between Joab and the wise woman. And she presents her case well. First she highlights the reputation of the city. The problem was not with the people in the city, with those citizens. They offered a valuable service to the nation. Second, she states that she was peaceable and faithful in Israel. And as a representative of the city, Joab should see all of them as peaceable and faithful to Israel. They're not rebelling. Third, Joab was now unnecessarily seeking to destroy this important city. Why would the commander of all the troops of Israel seek to bring death and destruction to an entire valued city? Her final point is given as a question and is most important. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? The Israelites were God's possession. To strike them down was to strike against their God. Was it right for Job to wipe them out to accomplish his own purposes? Her wisdom is persuasive. Job's response is now much more reasonable. He states he's not interested in destroying their city. Even though he's likely standing at that moment on top of his siege warfare. But if they would only give up Sheba, he will spare the city. This woman proves true to her word and makes clear their allegiance. And this peaceful resolution by delivering over the rebel's head. But can you see the sinful division present in these verses? You have a city willing to harbor this fleeing rebel against the king and Joab in his haste, in his zeal, goes against the entire city. You have a general willing to destroy innocent lives, the innocent lives of God's own people to accomplish his purposes. And what we see is a nation of Israel in disarray. And yet, 
God is still at work in unexpected ways. He uses this wise woman. She comes on the scene. We don't even know her name. And she preserves her city from even greater bloodshed. Now, would you be surprised to know that she followed the procedure for a city under siege, bargaining for peace as taught in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 and 11? What we're learning or what we see of of that is that she knew and applied God's word. And she was accounted as wise. Can you see the lesson here again? The lesson that we know so well and yet often apply to our lives so poorly. Wisdom comes from knowing God's word and applying it to our lives. We come to the last few verses of chapter 20 and see further instability. Let's look at the last few verses. We'll read in verse 23. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benai, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jairite, was also David's priest. Now, these four verses, along with 2 Samuel 8, 15 through 18, serve as bookends to David's rule. Keep your finger here in our text. Turn back to 2 Samuel 8, 15 through 18. You need to see the comparison here where David's uh, reign begins and how it's described and now here at the end how it's described. While the paragraphs are similar, there are some striking differences. Look down at verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Notice first, there's no corresponding verse in chapter 20 to what we read in chapter 8, 15. There's no commendation. David is struggling to maintain his rule over all Israel. The kingdom is now far from being ruled in justice and righteousness. Second, Joab is now leading the army of all Israel and that is a growing concern. In chapter 8, it may have seemed like the wise choice, a capable military leader. But now it highlights the compromising nature of David as he's unable to deal with the sins of his own family and judge them righteously when they fail. Third, David now has a cabinet position that is in charge of forced labor. This is a new development. And it recalls what Samuel had said to the elders of Israel in 1 Samuel 8. A king like the other nations would force the children of the Israelites into the service of the king. This reveals to us even David has caved to the pressure to use God's people. Like the kingdoms of the other nations. This issue of forced labor will contribute to the eventual division of the kingdom. So we end the chapter. The kingdom that God had established is being threatened. And yet what we've seen all along through our study in 1st and 2nd Samuel is proving true. Go back in your mind to 1st Samuel chapter 2 and think of Hannah's prayer. There are three main truths in her prayer. First, God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. He does so with Sheba again. 
Second, despite human evil, God is still at work. And work to cling to that truth. Even though it seems like in chapter 20, God is silent. And third, God will raise up a messianic king who will one day rule in perfect justice. Do you see these themes played out and illustrated here in chapter 20? I want you to think of it from the 30,000 foot view now as we've come to the end. David had been Israel's greatest king. He would be Israel's greatest king. No greater would come after him. He's the man after God's own choosing. He responds to incredibly difficult circumstances as he runs from Saul with such amazing faith. He's patient in an amazing way, in an encouraging way, in an exemplary way as he puts his trust in God, as he shows grace toward others who sin against him over and over again. He's truly a man who loved God and for much of his life ran after him and placed all of his trust in him. Pastor and author John Woodhouse states, David's kingdom displayed something of the character of God's promised kingdom. It makes us long for a king who will rule like that. At its best, David's kingdom was astonishing and beautiful. God says as much in chapter 8, 15. David administered justice and righteousness to all his people. But that's not what we see in chapter 20, is it? It's a mess. Do you think that David was possibly the greatest human ruler that ever lived? Think about that question. Who was greater? I think he he is based on how you're measuring. I don't mean he accomplished the most, that he ran the most effective government, that he saw the greatest times of peace and prosperity. Solomon will reign in a greater time of expansion, prosperity, and peace. But David was the man with whom God established an eternal dynasty. He's called the man after God's own heart or God's own choosing. This was the man God wanted for his people. David was the king in Israel's history most committed to God. And that's the point. Think of it. Here is the best that man has to offer in the way of stability and righteousness and peace. When we started our study through the book of 1 Samuel, we titled the series, Looking for a Leader. And this leads us to a poignant moment. Where can the best of men lead us? What do they really have to offer in and of themselves? As great as David was, he's not the leader that we need. He's deeply flawed. The consequences of his sinful choices infected and affected his entire nation. His kingdom eventually displayed the weakness of every human system. There's instability in every human organization, institution, community, and nation, and let's add even church. There's instability in every one of your relationships and ultimately in every human heart. There's no spouse or parent or friend that will not in some way fail you. So don't put your hope in mankind. There's no human structure 
that we can establish or build that can provide support or protect you the way that you would like, the way that God even intends. All of this instability in this life is caused by sinfulness, ours and others. But that doesn't mean stability can't be found. Remember what Hannah prayed all the way back in 1 Samuel 2. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. For there is no rock like our God. That's where stability is found. In the rock who is our God. So our text urges us to place your confidence in the only king who can provide peace and stability. When I think of the kind of stability that only Christ can provide, what comes to my mind is the story of Peter walking on the water through the midst of that storm. Talk about unsure footing. Peter does something daring in a moment of courageous faith. He sees Jesus walking toward them and he says, let me come out to you. And Jesus says, that's fine, come. But when does Peter begin to sink and become overwhelmed by the storm and the waves? When he takes his eyes off of Jesus the King. In a sense, that's what we're seeing here. The characters in our text have no focus on the Lord whatsoever. And like them, very often, we take our gaze off of him as well. We think life, like Joab, is about fixing our circumstances, blasting our way through the obstacles, using our resources, our abilities, our personality, our gifts to get our will done. Is that walking in faith with your gaze fixed on Christ? Our hope and the hope of the world is found in the promise that God had made to David. Through you will come a greater king. He would provide that perfect and righteous king to transform us from the inside out. Remember, David, David can't do that. He can't provide righteousness. This passage still affirms that our God reigns. Even in the midst of the chaos and turmoil of our world, the sin that we see all around us, the foolishness of our leaders, the fallenness of humans. Even now, David's greater son is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. You have nothing to despair when you see the chaos in your life, when you feel like you're unstable, when your eyes are fixed on the waves and the storm. Revelation 11 promises us that one day this king will reign physically over all the earth. He will complete what he's doing now. We read when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, he shall reign forever and ever. When do we feel the turmoil and instability of life lived under the curse of sin? Isn't it when we look at the circumstances around us? Isn't it when we look to our own wisdom? Isn't it when we insist on getting our own way? Isn't it when we lose sight of what God has promised? Put your eyes on Christ again. Think of it. He can even make the waves steady ground. Who can do that but him? 
The hymn urges us then, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth, its chaos, turmoil, instability, will become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for texts like this that remind us of the brokenness of our world, the fragileness of human leadership, the sinfulness of our own hearts. It helps us to long for Jesus Christ, our King. It persuades us we must stop pursuing our own wills. We must bow the knee again to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We must recognize who he is. He is wisdom and truth and peace and righteousness and justice and mercy. He's provided peace to us by facing your wrath. He is a king who reigns supreme right now in this moment. There's not a circumstance, not a thought that is beyond his control, that is beyond his knowledge. So our response must be to humbly bow in submission to this king who only serves his people for their good, who sacrifices himself for our good and for our godliness. So, Father, we delight, we take joy in bowing before our King. Give us the sight, give us the spiritual sense to see that we must follow Him if we would walk on stable ground, no matter what the circumstances are like in our lives. Stability is found in Christ alone. May we live that, may we love Him, may we love what you have told us to pursue. Thank you for giving us yourself through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.